Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be back with you. I've been away for three whole weeks, uh, two weeks on vacation, and obviously last Friday, or this past Friday, we had uh, Canada Day. I hope you all had an amazing time um, with your family, with your friends. I certainly did. It was my mom's birthday, so we celebrated that. But I've been super jazzed this week. It's three weeks with no radio, three weeks with no chats with you. Um, means there's lots of news to happen um, and lots of things going on. And certainly we have a big show today. I'm going to get into that. Um, but before I get into that, I just really quickly did want to say um, just a little plug. Uh, you may hear some of the ads on the radio, but last night I saw an amazing play called And Juliet, or musical, I should say, here in Toronto. Um, and uh, it was uplifting and a total blast. And if you're looking, if you're in the Toronto area or planning to come here or you're going to go to New York in the fall, um, I can't say enough nice things about it. It kind of felt like the Mamma Mia of our generation. So um, I would encourage all of you to check it out and look at it. Um, but we have a big show today. Uh, we're going to talk about lots of things. One news of the week, Patrick Brown, the Conservative Party leadership. There is whistleblowers. There's investigations. There's potential law breaking. I mean, you know, it's like the plot of a thriller movie. So we're going to unpack that a couple different ways today on the show. Uh, There's an outage. Uh, As many of you may know, I myself uh, have been a victim of this certain ways today, uh, including how we got on the show today. We managed to make it work. Um, So, but are you too reliant on the internet, too reliant on Wi-Fi? And then a national debate that none of us wanted, and yet we all have now, is Cats on Leashes. The city of Toronto, in all of their wisdom, has decided, or some people in the city of Toronto, I should say, have decided that maybe your cats should not be allowed to be outside the house off leash. Uh, And in fact, um, a committee's put forward a suggestion of that. So we're actually going to talk to the person who thought this was a good idea. Uh, (laughs) Give him a chance to have his say and then sort of put that question to you. But but maybe more seriously, more importantly, um, inflation is a big issue. Affordability is a big issue. We've been talking about it on this show and I think across the country for quite a while. And we have a new report out um, by RBC yesterday that says that Canada is officially headed for a recession in 2023. And you're listening and you're probably like, so what? Yeah, big deal, right? Um, But the twist of this is they say it will be short-lived and not as severe as previous recessions. So I really wanted to unpack that. And obviously, I am not an economist, although I'm related to John Kenneth Galbraith, who's a famous Canadian economist. Um, We have different political uh, sides. But regardless, we thought we'd have a guest on talk about this. So joining us today is Nathan Jansen. He's a senior economist at Royal Bank of Canada. Nathan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so RBC put out this report that says, as I mentioned, um, that Canada is officially kind of headed towards a recession in 2023. Um, you know, we've all, there's been a lot of saber rattling about this. People are super nervous at home. So what does that mean for the average Canadian? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the things to keep in mind uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, the R word or re- recession is, is, you know, we're, ta- we're talking about a, uh, you know, a decline in economic activity. Um, but that doesn't, you know, take into account where we are today. So where is that decline uh, coming from? And uh, and where we are right now uh, in the economy is like pretty strong. Uh, the unemployment rate uh, in Canada is at uh, historic lows in data dating back at least uh, to 1976. It declined. Um, you know, further in June, uh, we just had data today uh, showing uh, the unemployment rate falling to 4.9%. Um, so labor markets are very strong. There are a lot of job postings uh, still out there. 
Um, but this is also, um, you know, it's, it's uh, feeding into some of these inflation pressures that we're, that we're seeing. So basically, the economy is running above its long-run capacity limits. Uh, demand is stronger um, than, uh, uh, than uh, you know, production can keep up with. And when you have uh, more demand chasing limited supply, uh, it's kind of the point in the economic cycle where we're adding more um, you know, demand becomes uh, counterproductive uh, in terms of, you know, increasing inflation pressures. And that's what exactly what we've seen. Uh, and we've seen those inflation readings continue to surprise uh, on, the, on the upside. Um, there's a lot of growing concern from monetary policymakers, including the Bank of Canada, um, that those strong inflation readings are going to feed into uh, more significantly into longer run business and household inflation expectations. Um, and in that kind of a scenario, um, you know, you, you, would, you would require significant rate hikes and a significant uh, um, um, a deterioration in the economic backdrop to get those expectations better grounded. So we think, you know, the most likely path in the year, year ahead is that, uh, you know, uh, central banks will kind of err on the caution, on, ca- on the side of caution, at least in terms of tamping down on inflation pressures near term with, with more aggressive interest rate increases. Uh, than maybe we're expected, you know, a few months ago, um, and that that will slow down the economy from from a very strong pace uh, right now. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, the idea behind that is you you prevent the need for you know a much larger uh, uh, shock uh, at some point down the road if you don't do enough uh, to address inflation near term. Nathan, so you mentioned you've talked about you know much stronger rate increases than expected. Um, We've had a lot of noise here in Canada about the housing market. Um, I, I reading your kind of report and some of the coverage of it. Um, there's a note there that RBC expects housing prices to fall by 10% in the year ahead, um, which would take about 800 billion of household net worth out of the economy. You just mentioned those rate hikes, which would, would impact that. So is that, you know, is that something that's going to happen right away? Is that going to happen over the course of the next six months? Um, what does that look like for folks? I mean, many of whom have their retirement sort of set in their homes. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, the housing market has already shown pretty significant signs of softening, uh, and that's just with interest rate hikes uh, to date. And, and uh, you know, as we noted in that report, there are uh, significantly more uh, interest rate hikes uh, expected to come. Uh, so we are expecting, you know, a significant pullback in housing markets, um, you know, this year uh, and even next home resales we expect will be will be lower um, you know, we've been assuming that, you know, 10% drop in house prices. I think, again, context is, is important there. Um, you know, that 10% drop in, in house prices, you know, would reduce the, uh, you know, aggregate total Canadian uh, household uh, assets in, 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 uh, in real estate uh, by, about, by about $800 billion. Um, but it's, it, that would still, you know, not uh, retrace uh, even half uh, of what was a you know 2.4 trillion dollar increase uh, in household wealth and real estate uh, over the course of the pandemic. Um, so you know we're pulling back, uh, and then uh, you know a 10% drop in house prices uh, historically in Canada is is unprecedented. It's a very large decline, but it's just we're 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 also following unprecedented increases over the last uh, over the last couple of years. So. Uh, you know, I think that you know kind of limits the damage if you're looking at the impact over the full economic cycle, um, but it does uh, mean that uh, you know when 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 house, household wealth is is starting to ease back, you know households are less confident to spend, and so that's one of the factors that we're expecting will also contribute to uh, uh, you know slower spending you know next year. 
You mentioned in the report as well, like, you know, I mean, there's lots of factors to this, but talk about soaring food prices, um, really high energy prices are going to force this kind of quote unquote moderate contraction, as you're calling it. Um, but isn't usually, don't high energy prices usually benefit Canada, given we are, you know, a resource economy? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and that's where, you know, near term, yeah, and, and it, it should probably good to be clear, you know, the, the pullback in economic activity that we expect uh, is not right away. It's, it's next year. Uh, and, you know, part of the reason for that delay um, is, uh, is that, uh, you know, the commodity sector is benefiting from high, high, uh, high commodity prices. That includes, you know, the oil and gas sector uh, in Alberta, uh, but also mining in Saskatchewan. You know, you can think uh, potash prices were, were uh, you know, one of the, one of the commodities uh, to see a big increase with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so there are these, you know, certainly regions in Canada um, that have been benefiting from those high oil prices. It's just for the rest of the country uh, that are not the producers of those products. Um, you know, the the net impact is really just to increase costs for households, and that includes you know gasoline gasoline prices uh, for households. You know, are up uh, for all regions, um, but really the the uh, the added revenue flowing into those economies from higher commodity prices is uh, more concentrated in places like Alberta and Saskatchewan. Okay, that's uh, Nathan Jansen, Senior Economist at Royal Bank of Canada. Nathan, thanks for coming on. Uh, Nathan was speaking to us today about a new report released by RBC that says Canada is headed towards a recession in 2023. Um, But cold comfort for some of you, maybe, even though I feel like we all feel we're already in one, um, they say it will be short-lived and maybe not as severe as before. So certainly something to keep an eye on and something we're actually going to debate in the second half is how... Has a potential recession or almost recession changed your behavior? Are you nervous? Are you not selling your house? Uh, But before we get to that, whistleblowers, allegations of criminal activity and investigations. No, it's not the plot of the newest thriller. It is the federal conservative leadership race where my next guest will join us to give us the latest on this rollercoaster election. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. is Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. And as you know, this is the special summer treat, two hours of Free For All Friday with me. Uh, And as we tackle the biggest issues of the week, um, and one major issue uh, in politics this week uh, has been Patrick Brown. I mean, it's been incredible to see what uh, they've gone through this week. And this week, in fact, Pat- Patrick Brown, as you know, was disqualified for the conservative leadership race earlier uh, this week. Um, and then it's played out a bit of a soap opera, frankly. Um, and Brown originally blamed his ejection of this race and continues to on uh, members of the establishment sort of being in favor of Pierre Polyev. He joined Evan Solomon show this week to talk about that. We know where this is coming from. It was Pierre Pauly of supporters on Leoc uh, that were pushing this. Uh, clearly, uh, their campaign wanted me out of the race. Now, Conservative Party President Rob Batherson says those allegations from Brown are completely false. The allegations uh, came actually from within Mr. Brown's uh, camp. And uh, I'd love to be able to share for, to everybody uh, all the information uh, that the uh, party has uh, obtained. But the reality is now that uh, this is a matter for Elections Canada. 
Now, on CTV News Channel, uh, so, so despite this, Brown has also filed an appeal, which apparently he cannot do. So joining me today to kind of talk about this soap opera, unpack all the news this week, is Michael Couture, who's a senior political correspondent for CTV News Channel. Mike, thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me. So I've been away for a couple of weeks. I kind of come back. Patrick Brown gets booted, and the whole thing is just crazy. There's whistleblowers. There's alleged criminal activity, like, like what? What is going on? What is going on with the Conservative Party yeah. right now? <laughs> that, that's the sixty thousand dollar question, right? Um, or ten thousand dollar? Apparently, in this case, um, <laughs> you know, when you say soap opera, I mean, I don't think that actually does it justice. Um, it feels like every single day there is something new, a new layer to this that we're uncovering, and something that is interesting because you know, just today, Ian Brody. Uh, who's the head of LEOC, and you know what? People are starting to get to know these acronyms uh, for no apparent reason, but it's the <laughs> Leadership Election Organizing Committee. Um, and he, he came out and he sent a message out to members this morning, actually, and saying that, look, you know, we would love to share everything that we have, uh, but there's legal restrictions, and we're dealing with these allegations of breaking federal law, but, you know, we're doing this, and we're putting this out there to be above board as much as possible. But, you know, Leo could not afford the risk of having a leadership candidate under the investigation of Elections Canada, breaking a federal law. It, I think it's fascinating that it was, you know, a moving story that says we can't say more. But, oh, so this, this person who was the source of it actually came out and, and sort of outed herself and said, no, no, this is, this is what it was. Um, you know, in the midst of everybody going, it, it was a he said, he said story. Now it's a he said, he said, she said story with this uh, Deborah Chaudhuin, who, you know, was a former campaign worker, apparently saying that she had asked Patrick Brown to uh, pay for her campaign expenses uh, or expenses that were incurred while she was working on the campaign. And that, uh, you know, Brown said, he look, I, you know what, I'm going down a rabbit hole. Stop me anytime, because <laughs> I, I think... I think that the thing that Canadians need to take away from this is even conservatives are looking at this now. The conservatives that I've spoken to and saying, this is a mess. Um, and one conservative that I spoke to said they are concerned that the Canadian public is watching this and saying, this is the party that wants to run our country. And they're worried that people, you know, by the time an election comes around, that they'll remember the mess that this leadership race has become right now and punish them for it and to that end obviously you know the party has its own rules right which they allege the patrick brown campaign broke um and then there's addition there's the elections canada rules which are like federal laws which so in theory that's whatever criminal you may say or, or whatever the piece that is so brown is now hired marie hennon who's like a very famous criminal lawyer representative john yeah, meshi i want i want to interrupt yeah if you thought this story couldn't get any more interesting and soap opera if that's not even a phrase, but I'm making it up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Marie Hennon is hired by Patrick Brown. This is no small potatoes um, lawyer from, you know, I don't want to say Ottawa, but wherever, right? You know, Brampton. This is Marie Hennon. She has defended, you know, Jean Gomeshi. She has defended the former attorney general of uh, Ontario. She has defended former vice admiral, um, um, Mark Norman, this is somebody who plays for keeps. This is somebody who, you know, takes on cases based on, on you know, what she believes she can win. And this is interesting. 
Yeah, and, and to that point, my question was going to be, because the party says they've come out and said there's no appeal process here. Like, the decision has been made. Patrick Brown is no longer a candidate. So what is the hope, in your, your point, is Marie Hennon doesn't just take on clients for fun, right? She takes on because she wants to win. So have you heard anything about what the proposed avenue there and what kind of damage, let's just say they drag it out in court, even if there is no you know, official party process, what kind of damage do you think that does to the party in the long run? Yeah, so first on the, you know, the probability of winning. I mean, this may be something that is you know, a civil suit and uh, that it's re- recouping of damages uh, you know, and that sort of thing. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's one possibility there. Um, can Marie Hennon get uh, Patrick Brown back on the ballot? Uh, and I say back on the ballot because he's technically on the ballot. Um, yeah. One more. Again, I told you, don't get me started here. There's another layer. But so the ballots have been sent it out. They're not reprinting them. His name will be on it. They just won't <laughs> count his ballots when they come in. If somebody writes Patrick Brown because it's a ranked ballot, if they write Patrick Brown number one, Jean Chouet number two, whatever, they're just going to ignore the Brown as the top choice and move on to number two. Anyways, okay, that's an aside. Um but, yeah, so what is the end game here? I'm not 100% sure. What it does to the whole process, I think, is that it does cast uh, this really difficult light on this entire process. Um, could it be that, you know, right before we announce on, the September, on September 10th who the winner is uh, or the supposed winner is, that there's a court challenge, that, you know, there's a court date, and that's, that, these are all things that none of us thought were possible, but now we're very much in the realm of possibility. Interesting to note is that, um, you know, our bureau chief here uh, at CTV News in Ottawa, um, at the Parliamentary Bureau, um, Joyce Napier, interviewed Jean Charest yesterday. And when you ask yourself, sort of take a step back, everybody had said, okay, so where are these voters going to go? Where are the people that he signed up? Uh, Patrick Brown as a um, as a candidate, where are they going to end up going? And some people worried that they may go to the Polyev camp. Others said they may just be completely disenfranchised and say, "Forget it, I'm sitting home." You know, Patrick Brown was my guy, and I'm just not going to vote at all. Sheree yesterday says, "No, no, no, no. They're coming to my camp." And matter of fact, I've got organizers from Patrick Brown's camp that are saying, "You know what?" We still want to support a progressive candidate because on the stage, when you saw some of the debates, they were two of the more progressive candidates out there or more in the vein of the old progressive conservative party, um, which, you know, Sheree led at one point. But uh, he says, no, uh, they're they're coming to to help me now. And so I think that this is actually kind of good news for me, as as bad as he feels for Patrick Brown, who he calls a friend and thinks that, uh, you know, the process has been difficult. He thinks that this may pave, you know, be a, a path to victory for him. Uh, Mike, I got about 20 seconds left. Um, just wondering, I know there's been a zillion twists and turns to this thing. Is there any, like, anything around the corner we should expect, or we should just kind of wait and see what happens? I, uh, in 20 seconds, really? No, I'm yeah, you um, got it. Look, <laughs> at this point, I don't think anything else will shock me. Uh, and when you say what's around the corner, um, I, I think that there's something to, to be to be said for this person, um, Deborah uh, Jodoin. She's a longtime worker in uh, on um, on past campaigns for Brown. Is there something else there? I don't know, but it would not shock me if we get another twist today, tomorrow, Sunday, next week. I, I think it's buckle up, get ready. This race is far from over.
All right. Famous words. I like it. Um, Mike LeCouture, senior political correspondent for CCTV News Channel. Thanks for coming on and unpacking that. Thanks for having me. Uh, so next up, a proposed ban on cats outside unless they're on leash is making headlines across the country. We are going to talk to the man who proposed it to find out why on earth he thinks this is a good idea. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Free for All Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Uh, welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith. We will be getting to the roundtable in the second hour of the show. Right now, we are kind of unpacking some of the big topics we're going to debate a little later today. And certainly, um, this next one is getting lots of reaction already on the text board. I'll be honest with you. I mentioned it off the hop that we were going to talk about this a little bit. Uh, and lots of reaction nationally. Uh, so city of Toronto sometimes, uh, is known to propose, I think some head scratchers, uh, and certainly people in this country have seen the news, which is that, uh, a proposal coming out of a city of Toronto committee, um, to, uh, prohibit pet owners from allowing their pets to roam at large. And that part was proposed by city staff, which basically said pet owners with the exception of cats and domesticated pigeons. And I was today years old when I learned there are such a thing as domesticated pigeons um, should no longer be allowed to allow their pets to roam at large. Now, a proposal came forward to say, well, what about cats? Because apparently cats kill 20 million birds a year. Um, the Toronto Wildlife Center has called them a ma- outdoor cats, a massive problem for Toronto area wildlife. So a proposal came forward to say, well, we should also ban free roaming cats. And in fact, you need to keep them on leash. Now, lots of folks are scratching their head, myself included. I used to own a cat. Um, I did try and walk her on leash at one point just to get her outside. It was a disaster. Um, so joining me next to talk about this and maybe unpack why this thing makes sense if it does is uh, Glenn DeBearmaker. He's an environmentalist. Um, he's a former Scarborough city councillor and former deputy mayor for Scarborough, actually. Uh, Glenn, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, uh, thank, thank you, Amanda. Nice to touch base again. Yeah, and, and for folks that listen, I used to work for Mayor Tory as his uh, direct communication. So when... Uh, when um, when I guess I should call him Councillor Deputy Mayor DeBearmaker was it was elected at that time. We used to work together once in a while and things. So it's awesome to to reconnect with you. So I know um, I believe you deputed so that you kind of went to the committee and talked about this. So it's getting lots of reaction on the text board. People kind of well, actually it's interesting. Lots of folks are saying cats are menaces, and lots of folks are saying this makes no sense. So maybe talk to me about how on earth people can leash their outdoor cats. Like why does this why does this thing make sense for uh, for people at Toronto? Sure. I, I think it makes a lot of sense in a lot of different ways. Actually, 90 other municipalities already have no roaming bylaws. So places like Calgary, Edmonton, Montreal, Hamilton, Burlington, Oshawa, Vaughan, Pickering, Peterborough, Barrie. There's 90 of them that already have this bylaw. And the City of Toronto staff put a report that said, well, let's give an exemption to cats and let cats do whatever they want and roam wherever they want. And even if they're a nuisance and they come over to your property, they trespass onto your property and they poop in your kid's sandbox and your kid's sandbox, uh, you know, they kids pick up the prize and bring it into your house. You can't call the city and ask for that nuisance cat to be removed. So. Uh, I think there's a lot of good reasons that uh, if you love your cat, you should keep it indoors. I've got two. Um, they're indoor cats because I know if I let my cats outside, they can be killed by coyotes. <clears throat> Sorry, they can be killed by cars, 
the city of Toronto picks up, up over a thousand dead cats a year that have been hit by cars. So if you love your cat, why would you let your cat run out, roam around the street uh, and get hit by a car and killed? And then us poor taxpayers, you and I as taxpayers actually have to pay a staff person to get in a truck to drive to that location, scoop up the dead cat with a shovel, take it back to the animal shelter, and then incinerate it. So we taxpayers are paying for all of this when if we just kept cats inside and cuddled them and loved them in the warmth of our own homes, we wouldn't have this problem. And of course, uh, the other issue for cats and again, protecting cats is there's people put out a lot of poison for a lot of different reasons. And a lot of cats do die of poison because the neighbor put out poison for a rat. Your cat went there and went, oh, this smells really good and tastes really good. They do that so that the, the rats eat the, the bait. And your cat's eaten the bait or eaten the dead rat, and your cat dies of poisoning. So uh, it's good to keep cats inside because it's good for cats. Cats are killing machines. They may be cute and chubby and cuddly like mine are, but once they're outside, they become killing machines and kill uh, actually, the, the figure from Environment Canada is between 100 and 300 million birds per year are killed in Canada by free-roaming cats. So if you love birds, please keep your cat indoors. So there's a lot of reasons why it's good to keep your cat indoors. Um, those are lots of reasons. But I, one of the, you mentioned other jurisdictions have these like banning of free-roaming bylaws. Um, the city's kind of executive director of licensing and standards, which is sort of the body is, that would enforce this, this rule should it come into force, said it, this was not the only impossible to enforce or problematic. So how does it, if it's in other, how does it work in other jurisdictions? Are people actually out there ticketing, you know, cat owners for like a cat that's roaming free? Do they try, like, how does this work? Yes. Well, and I was at the meeting where the executive director said that. And I think that that comment is really, I say respectfully, it's just garbage. Um, to, to say that, oh, <clears throat> if we have a bylaw that says you can't have free roaming cats, excuse me, our shelters will be overwhelmed, simply isn't true. The city of Toronto did the exact same anti-roaming bylaw for dogs. And the same argument the director is arguing today was made decades ago when we actually said, your dogs can't roam free in the city of Toronto. When I was younger, uh, on my street, we had a pack of seven or eight dogs that ran free up and down my street. I liked some of the little dogs that were cute and friendly, and there were, there were German Shepherds and two Boxers, and I was afraid of those big dogs. I was a little kid. I was afraid of them, but the law in, in Toronto at the time, dogs were allowed to roam free, and when the city brought in the anti-roaming bylaw for dogs, um, staff and some citizens said the same thing. Oh, our shelters will be overrun with dogs. You just can't do it. The dogs need to be outside. And guess what? Here you and I are. There are no packs of wild dogs or, or, or domesticated dogs running up and down the street where I live. Uh, our shelters are not overflowing with dogs. I mean, there's always a, a, a challenge with, you know, people giving up their dogs. But the, the, the anti-roaming bylaw for dogs has worked very well. We, I mean, I, I think if you went home today and saw two free-roaming dogs on your street, you and the neighbors would say, hey, who's, whose dogs are those? They're not supposed to be running up and down the street. So all these predictions of doom and gloom, uh, I, I just think people are hyperventilating too much. We've done it for dogs. We'll do it for cats. And I, I have faith. I was a counselor for 15 years. 
when we set a speed limit, most people obey the law. Not all of them, but most of them. So if we have a bylaw that says your dog's not allowed to roam free, most people in the city of Toronto obey the law. And if we say your cat's not allowed to roam free because we don't want it to be killed by a car, most people will obey the law. So th- this this drama that people talk about simply doesn't exist. Um. I just got about a minute, a minute, minute and a half left here. I, I just curious. I mean, you mentioned that you've been a, you were a councillor for 15 years. Um, you've been on politics for a while. Uh, this is sort of inflamed debate, not just in Toronto, but kind of across the country. Frankly, we were talking on the show today. Uh, did you expect this kind of reaction when you went before the committee to kind of propose this, or are you surprised uh, that people are as passionate about the pro or cat, cat or dog world here and uh, and the freedom of the cats? Uh, no, I have been rescuing feral cats and being a foster parent and, 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 and rehoming cats for the last 30 years of my life. Um, and I've done a lot in the animal welfare field. So no, people feel passionately uh, about their dogs and their cats and birds. So you have people who love birds and you have people who love cats and often they're the same people. So um, no, I, I know that people are, are passionate, but, but I would say to those people who have, have a long list of reasons why their cat can't stay inside, I would say to them, that's the exact same arguments that people said about dogs, that dogs need to be outside, that my dog goes to the door and cries and cries and he, he scratches at the door, he wants to go outside. But I can guarantee you, the people who live on my street now, when their dog uh, is, is just around, they're indoors and then they take him for a walk, they take him to a dog park. Yes, some people let their dog uh, off-leash in the local park if there's not too many kids around and I don't have any problem with that. But but that's how society works. Uh, we have to do things that are in the best interests of everybody. And again, if my cat trespasses onto your property and kills the birds that you are feeding at your bird feeder or poops in your vegetable garden or sprays when they're in heat and makes your, your back patio smell bad, I think you have a right as a citizen to call the city and say, this animal is a nuisance and is trespassing. It's not mine. It should be removed. So again, if you love your cat, Keep your cat indoors. All right. We're going to leave it there. Glenda Bearmaker, environmentalist, former city, Scarborough City Councilor, talking about Toronto's potential plan to ban free roaming cats. Uh, thanks so much, Glenn. Okay, are, you, are you debating your summer plans? Well, next up is our weekly segment where we take you across Canada on a road trip and talk to special guests from every province. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we talk about the biggest stories of the week, coast to coast. Uh, And this is a special summer segment that we've kind of put in uh, where over the the 12 weeks um, that I'm hosting over the summer for this extra special two-hour show, we're going to spend some time going to a different corner of our country on kind of what we call our cross Canada road trip. And in every, every segment, we're going to talk to someone special about an area where you may not have visited. Maybe you should go there. Um, so joining us today to talk about uh, maybe this, this next town and province where we should go is the mayor of Winnipeg, Brian Bowman, uh, your worship. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me, Amanda. Great to join you. 
Now, I will confess, uh, I've, I've traveled the country a fair bit, but one place I have yet to be is, Win- is Winnipeg. Um, I have friends from Winnipeg who are um, lovely people who know a good party. So I <laughs> assume <laughs> that's a, it's a good thing. Uh, folks know it, obviously, is the home of the Winnipeg Jets. Um, there's a robust arts and culture scene that I love to talk to you a little bit about today. And of course, I know it's the home yeah. of the Canadian Museum of Human Rights. But if you could, you know, if you were talking to somebody and trying to convince them to come to Winnipeg, um, why why should they they look to your 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 town as the, as the best place to go in Canada? You know, I've had the I've had the opportunity. I uh, actually went to to law school in uh, in Toronto, so I, I've lived uh, I, I've lived in Ontario. Um, I've traveled as well, but you're not going to find what I would argue is probably one of the most quintessential Canadian cities in Winnipeg. It's where East meets West. We have a strong connection to the North. We have the largest uh, Indigenous population in the entire country, and it's growing. I myself am Indigenous. I'm the first uh, Métis mayor and, and first mayor of a major Canadian city who's who's Indigenous. Um, and we're also extremely diverse. And so what what that all means is you'll have a very authentic experience. Um, our, our, our branding that we've just rolled out for, uh, for marketing the city is Winnipeg made from what's real. And uh, if you want kind of an authentic experience, whether it's in architecture, food, uh, just in sports and hospitality, Winnipeg is a great place to visit. And in fact, we've been popping up on, on, on international publications over the last number of years, getting that recognition uh, that I think more Canadians need to hear and they need to come visit us because uh, we'd, we'd love to see them. Uh, Time put uh, Winnipeg on the cover uh, last, I think it was last year, and rated Winnipeg one of the world's um, greatest places uh, to visit. And so only two in, in Canada, one was Jasper and the other was, was Winnipeg. Amazing. Um, so and you kind of mentioned some top of the wave stuff. So if I was to say, okay, fine, Mayor, I'm going to take you up and I'm going to go, I'm going to go to yeah. Winnipeg for the weekend. What should I do when I'm there? Oh boy. Well, it depends. Like what, <laughs> what do you like to do when you travel? Uh, I like a good, I like some good food. I like a good beverage. Um, I love to go outside and do a little, like a bike ride or something like that. And uh, maybe a little, a little larks and culture sprinkled in there, but that would be my last, okay. that would be my, my kind of good vacation. Well, some some of the, I mean, you, you mentioned in the preamble, the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. It's, it's uh, I mean, this is something we're really lucky to have here in the city of Winnipeg. It is, um, it's located at the Forks, which is the historic junction of the Assiniboine and the Red River. It's been a meeting place for Indigenous peoples for over 6,000 years. And uh, that is, uh, it, it's like Granville Island. And I, I love going to Granville Island when I'm in Vancouver. This is Granville Island on steroids. I mean, it is, it is big. There's lots of green spaces. Uh, great dining. That that's a go-to place for Winnipeggers and for tourists alike, and it's our most popular tourist attraction in in Manitoba. Um, other places to visit include the Inuit Art Center at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, which is Canada's oldest civic art gallery, and it's called Kalmyuk, and it's it houses the world's largest public art collection of modern Inuit art. And um, and then there's things like the Journey to Churchill, one of Nahid Menchie's favorite places to visit when he's here. We go we go see it. It's at the it's at the zoo, but uh, you have kind of an immersive experience with polar bears swimming over your head. Um, you're safe. <laughs> you're not in the water. <laughs> but um, you know those those are those are some of the things. And then the dining. Um, you know we've got amongst the most diverse dining experiences you can have. Something actually when I lived in Toronto, I loved as well. Um, but you know, you, you can visit the, the West end, you can get everything from, you know, 
high end, you know, five star to, you know, one of my favorites is, uh, is a, is a little rib place in, in Charleswood in, in the area of the city that my family resides where you get, you know, ribs in kind of a tinfoil bag and they're the best in the world. I think they're just amazing. All right. Strong words for folks that are listening from <laughs> Southern U S or other places, best ribs in the world. In Winnipeg, oh, yeah. But yeah. Bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it sounds good. delicious though. All right. Well, well even, even if they're not, you win trying, you know, <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, you're also Winnipeg's known a bit for extreme weather, right? Like super hot summers, yeah. um, super cold winters. Uh, I've, some of my friends who've lived there have, have told me stories. I mean, I lived in Ottawa for a little while and, and that was cold, but yeah. they said it's nothing compared to Winnipeg. Um, is there a time of year where folks should consider visiting Winnipeg over others or are you staying bundled up? You can come anytime. Yeah, I mean, we are a four-season playground. And so, I, I, you know, living in Toronto, my, my sister used to live in, in Ottawa. And so I've spent a fair amount of time there, even just professionally over the years. And I've never been more cold than winter in southern Ontario. Um, you know, it's so damp, and we're, we're not used to that out in the prairies. And we, we are very cold in the winter. There's no, no way to, to sugarcoat that. But it, it, the, the dryness does help if you're, if you're dressed for it. I think actually the best time to visit is is February. And that may shock you because, really? you know, summers, summers are beautiful. Cottage country is, is really popular here. Uh, but quite honestly, I think summer is beautiful everywhere in Canada. I mean, everywhere I visited in the summer in, in Canada is beautiful. But if you want a real winter experience, um, you know, we have the longest skating trail in the world that we build on our rivers with a international design competition that has warming shacks along the way. Um, you know, the, you know, I've, I've often joked with Mayor Watson in Ottawa that the Rideau Canal is cute, but it's, it's not the longest skating trail. It's, it's, <laughs> now, in fairness, it's actually the, the largest skating rink in the world. So we're actually both right, but I won't admit that. Um, <laughs> you know, but yeah, in February, we have the Festival de Voyager, which is, uh, Western Canada's largest winter festival, beautiful ice sculptures. Um, we have historically had raw almond, which is a five-star dining experience you have on the river. So they build a temporary restaurant right on the river where your, your toes are in the ice. And, um, you know, and we bring in chefs from across Canada and to, 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 to give you that, uh, that experience. And so if you want to really, that's why I say it's really the quintessential Canadian city, because when we have summer, like, you know, you know, it'll go about 30 beautiful big sky country cottage country but then in the winter you do have really really cold weather so huge ice fishing uh, community here um you can catch channel catfish on the uh, the red river just north of winnipeg is a really good spot that i go with with my kids and with uh with dignitaries sometimes and you're you're pulling in you know 40 40 pound channel catfish um they're not pretty but they're fun to catch <laughs> so <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Mayor Bowman, we are running out of racetrack here, but I will say um, you have me swayed that I should come to Winnipeg. I'm not really sure if I'll come in February, but uh, <laughs> I, I might. But thank well, you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. I will. I will definitely if you're coming, reach out. Look me up. Let me know, and and I'll meet you at the airport, and we'll show you Winnipeg and and all that our community has to offer. But I really appreciate the offer the opportunity to to chat with your listeners and with you about it. We're really proud of our town. Amazing. Thank you so much, Mayor Bowen. Okay, take care. Have a great weekend. All right. Uh, well, that was uh, Cross Ken. I will say, never been to Winnipeg. Um, it was absolutely delightful to talk to him. Uh, next up, we're going to get into the roundtable. 
We're going to talk about digging deeper into what's going on with Patrick Brown. What does a recession mean for you? And what on earth is ungrading? That's next on Free For All Friday. I'm Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome to Free For All Fridays on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Here's your host, Amanda Galbraith. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. For those of you who are with us for the first hour, just a gentle reminder, this whole summer, it's two hours of Free For All Friday, not once. You get an extra extra bonus with me. Uh, but this is, I, I love the first bit, but I will say this is my favorite, which is uh, Free For All Friday panel, where we dig into some of the biggest stories of the week happening across the country um, with some really smart people, uh, including today we have Al Farabee, uh, frequent guest on the show. He's the morning show host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, BC, and return guest, uh, Jennifer Pagliero. She's a former City Hall reporter with the Toronto Star, and now, Jen, you a crime, like, call you a crime reporter with the Star? What's your yeah, official yeah, I'm new covering, title? I'm covering crime in Covering general. crime. Yeah. Perfect. Um, smart lady, all around, uh, you know, and, and cat lover, which we'll get into later when we debate the great... <laughs> the great cat debate in this country. Uh, so, uh, so Al, Jen, thank you so much for coming on. Um, this first topic has been making uh, headlines across the country. And I sort of had about three weeks off from radio. So I was kind of paying attention to it with one eye. But, you know, coming back this week and seeing the announcement that uh, Patrick Brown was given the boot uh, by the conservative uh, LEOC, the leadership organization. I can't believe that we're even saying the word LEOC on air, but it's literally, I think, transfixed so much of the country uh, that we're now getting familiar with some of these acronyms, which is bananas. Um, and the reasons they said they were made aware of, quote, serious allegations of wrongdoing by the Patrick Brown campaign. Um, the party said these allegations, quote, violate the Elections Canada Act, a.k.a. it breaks federal laws, um, not to mention breaking the federal leadership rules. Now, they claim they went to Brown, gave him a chance to respond. He didn't respond to their satisfaction. So they came, voted together and gave him the boot. Patrick Brown, as he is known to do, came out swinging. This is Patrick Brown on the Evan Solomon Show this week. I mean, we signed up 150,000 uh, new members to the party, um, which blew previous marks out of the water. You know, Aaron O'Toole had signed up 20,000 when he was successful, and the party establishment was very clearly nervous. You know, Pierre Polyev was running uh, paid television commercials in the GTA attacking my candidacy, and that's not the sign of a confident um, campaign. He continued to say this. Clearly, the party establishment wanted Pierre. I'm shocked that they would take lengths this extraordinary to rob members of the party of a democratic uh, election uh, based on um, an anonymous complaint that we have no information on. Now, uh, last <laughs> last night, uh, we got some more information about the anonymous complaint, which the party says Patrick, the Project Brown campaign, is well aware of. So Debbie Jodouin, um is a longtime organizer, um, claims that her salary and expenses were paid for by a private company. Now, the issue with that is obviously private corporation, corporate donations are prohibited. So this is this is illegal. Um, so the party kind of hit back and said, yo, the call is coming from inside your house because Joe Dwyer was an organizer for the Patrick Brown campaign. So this is CBC Party President Rob Batherson. The allegations uh, came actually from within Mr. Brown's uh, camp. And uh, I'd love to be able to share for, to everybody uh, all the information uh, that the uh, party has uh, obtained. But the reality is now that uh, this is a matter for Elections Canada. 
So we've got whistleblowers. We've got alleged law, federal law breaking. We have claims that he said, he said situation, which is now as a she said with Debbie Jodoin. And in addition, um, just to make it extra spicy, Patrick Brown has hired Marie Hennon, who is uh, the pre- what, a preeminent criminal defense attorney here in Canada. Um, she pulls no punches, uh, who he plans to appeal, but the party says there's no way to appeal this. So my question is now, like, let's, there's the, there's the insanity of all of this, which I find, you know, both sad and fascinating to watch. But mm-hmm. bottom line is, is these people are running to be the prime minister of the country. Like, this is what this race is for, right? I mean, this is a third term for the Trudeau government. Um, you know, even just statistically looking at it in theory, whoever wins this thing um, will likely be PM or certainly will be the official opposition leader, which is a big, important job. Um, so my question to you both, and I'll go to you first. Are you OK with the handling of this so far? Um, does this shake some of your faith in the Conservative Party as a whole? Or do you think most Canadians are not paying attention and therefore we'll just get to September and we'll have a, a peer coronation and we should all just move along? My my sense out west is people are paying attention, even out west, as to what this is. This is just something that is new and different in Canadian politics, at least my history with it. I, I interviewed Jugmeet Singh this week. He's out west uh, for a variety of different reasons. And I, I asked him, he said, boy, wouldn't it be great to have a party that would concentrate on, you know, trying to get out of what we are in with pandemic and, you know, possible recession and, 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 uh, and, and working for Canadians rather than squabbling amongst themselves. That's not a shocking thing out of a jugby to say at this particular juncture, but, but it does, it does concern uh, or it should concern Canadians as to, you know, where this party is going and, and why this is happening within the party. I, I look out West right now and I'm looking at what's happening uh, provincially with the BC NDP and the Premier John Horgan stepping down. Two frontrunners that uh, came out, uh, Ravi Kalan and uh, David Eby, they're both the ministers in John Hor- Horgan's cabinet. Uh, one, Ravi Kalan just basically said, you know what, I talked to my family and this isn't for me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to step away and I'm going to endorse David Eby. It's over. Like in British Columbia, it's like one is endorsing the other. It's it's all nice. Everybody's shaking hands. And I don't know, is that the politics that we should be having? Or is this the new style of politics, you know, that uh, is part of what's happening south of the border that's leaking into Canada that that uh, that is occurring within the federal conservatives? To me, it's concerning. But, you know, I, I'm open to, you know, what this is and why this is happening. Perhaps it's tactical. Who knows? Uh, Jen, um what do you make of this whole schmazzle? I'll kind of, you know, there's a lot there. I'll let you take in any direction, but do you think this will shake faith from the public in whoever is the final winner? Or do you think that, you know, Patrick Brown, who's had some credibility issues around ethics investigations in the past, um, people are just going to kind of say, well, that's just Patrick Brown and the party is, is okay to keep going. Yeah, I mean, I think it re-raises a lot of like issues I think have always been there about transparency into these like party races. You know, once you get into government and and uh, in, you know, the uh, general elections, I think there is more insight into what goes on. But, you know, from the early stories on this, you could really see like there's a lot of secrecy. There's there's a lot of uh, a lacking clarity on what was happening. And then we're kind of getting these dribbles of information. Like you said, OK, now we know the call is coming from inside the house 
both. Um, and I think it um, detracts from like the early statements that Brown had made saying like, you know, they didn't give me enough time or like they don't have any evidence. Um, I think like from what I know about this committee, if they did get some kind of substantial evidence from uh, this campaign organizer, um, then I think it behooved them to look into it. Um, but then we also had early stories saying that like some of the voting members like hadn't actually seen any evidence. So I think there's still a lot of like weird questions there about the process. Um, and I think a lot of things can be true at once, right? Like Patrick Brown is saying, you know, they don't want me. This is like Kafkaesque. Like it might be true that the majority of like conservative members like do not want him in this race, but it could also be true that he broke uh, federal election act rules, um, which I guess is what they're investigating. So interesting to see. Uh, we know that he's kind of stepped in it before and had these sort of um, blow up like media controversies. So I'm I'm interested to see like what they actually say once we get more information about, you know, what evidence they have of this private company. Um, I saw some Globe reporting that there's like some kind of numbered company. So those are all registered things. We'll see. We'll see what what the committee, I guess, releases. That's my problem is like, there's no like set process. Like you said, there isn't even an appeal provision. So it's hard to know how much information we'll get and whether the average person can really like parse that and and feel satisfied in whatever the outcome is. Yeah, and, and I think I think the transparency piece is is and I'm guessing is the party like my guess is that this is the last thing the party wanted to do. I know like knowing and having worked previously for Ian Brody, um, I'll say he really runs a tight ship, and I've said that before. Um, but I think they probably didn't want to have this public battle the way they're having it. Um, but I think Patrick Brown has also learned from past experiences and he knows the best way to win this is to fight publicly and fight hard so my guess is uh buckle up folks i don't think this is the last we've seen from any of them uh and i think it means we'll continue to talk about it on this show for sure and continue to unpack it with with folks so uh rbc is saying canada's headed for a recession it's official household prices are going to go down food prices are going to go up what should you do about it that's next on the free for all friday i'm amanda galbraith on the hurt radio talk network Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the show. I'm Amanda Galbraith, host of Free For All Friday, where we talk about some of the biggest stories of the week and we debate them with an all-star panel. And today on the show, we have Al Faraby. He's a morning show host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria. And Jennifer Pagliaro, uh, she's a crime reporter with the Toronto Star um, an all-around brilliant person. Uh, we're talking about the last last round. Now, this topic maybe isn't new news, but to me, there was a new wrinkle to this that I thought I want to kind of put to the group here today. Uh, so yesterday, RBC released a report that says Canada is headed towards a recession in 2023. Um, and earlier in the show, we talked to RBC economist uh, Nathan Jansen about this. But at home, you're probably like, yeah, and I'm feeling this for a while, right? Um, but the twist is they're saying it will be short-lived and not as severe as rapport. Uh, here is senior RBC economist Nathan Jansen explaining that. 
So basically, the economy is running above its long-run capacity limits. Uh, demand is stronger than uh, you know production can keep up with. And when you have uh, more demand chasing limited supply, uh, is kind of the point in the economic cycle where you know demand becomes uh, counterproductive uh, in terms of you know increasing inflation pressures. And that's what exactly what we've seen. Uh, so all of that very complicated economic terms basically means that people still want to buy a lot of stuff. There's less stuff available. Prices are going up. Um, and we need to cool that off a little bit. So we talked a bit about that. So we know food prices. What does this mean for you at home? Food prices are going to continue to go up. Um, we expect more interest rate increases. So good if you have a bunch of money in the bank and savings. Uh, not so good if you have a bunch of loans. Um, but also the housing market, which has been a huge topic in Canada um, for a while. We've had historic increases um, and I asked him about that. He said RBC expects housing prices to fall by 10% in the year ahead. Um, mm. So is that something that will happen right away? Uh, this is what he said. 10% drop in house prices uh, historically in Canada is, is unprecedented. It's a very large decline. But, you know, I think that you know, kind of limits the damage if you're looking at the impact over the full economic cycle. Um, but it does uh, mean that... Uh, you know, when 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 house, household wealth is is starting to ease back, you know, households are less confident to spend it. So, I wanted. I know we've talked a lot about inflation on the show, but to me, I think this is kind of a new wrinkle and sort of a confirmation that it's it's. But not till twenty twenty three, which is interesting because I think we all kind of feel it now. Um, to you, Al, what's what's your reaction to this? Are you surprised? Are you going to be changing in your behavior? Um, you know, for example, for for us, we're probably going to have to move out of my condo just because we need more space for our family in the next year right. and a bit. Um, we chose to delay that just till things stabilize, but I still have to kind of figure that out. So this is a big thing for me. But what, what do you make of, what's your reaction to this news? Well, I like what he said about housing prices coming down because that, that's a major concern. Like there's a generation and it's probably across the country, but we have definitely done pieces here in Victoria about that generation coming into the housing market right now. And they're already saying to us, we can't afford to get in, period. So that's a major concern about a, a generation of people that are just like, it's not going to happen for me in my lifetime. Well, that's a huge concern. So if he's talking about, you know, at least some sort of relief coming down the pike that's not so far away, that's encouraging. The other thing that we watch very carefully, and you mentioned the food prices, and the one thing that we're noticing a lot right now, we, we talk to like food banks and who's coming into food banks. And more and more, it's just like people that have like regular jobs and they're just trying to make ends meet and they can't. And these are people that a year or two or three ago could. So we're starting to see more and more of that. So obviously something has to be done about that because there's a lot of things that factor into that. Uh, people that, because, you know, there's a ton of jobs around. People can't uh, fill jobs. Why? Because they can't afford to come to a city like Victoria and live. So they don't bother coming. So that has to be addressed, too, as far as like making places livable, providing livable wages. All the the one thing that comes back to me is, uh, as you know, and we've talked about it, that uh, Victoria is a heavy tourist town and all the people in the tourism and hospitality industry say and they, they said this at the beginning of the pandemic. It's about four to five years of recovery. So that's kind of on par with with what your guest was talking about as well. It's like we're going to sort of bend into what this is. It kind of feels like we're in it, uh, but it's going to take another two, three, perhaps four years to get out of it. So that's kind of where we're at, at least on the West Coast. Jen, um, you're, I would like to call you youngest, young person. Um, <laughs> I, I feel youngish, you adjacently young. Uh, do you, 
you know, I'm trying to look for some silver linings in this this thing. Um, and do you see this sort of correction, I can call it a correction, or the fall in, in housing value? It's someone, I assume, who will potentially maybe want to buy a condo or a house one day or whatever. Do you see that as encouraging, or are you additionally concerned it's just kind of more uncertainty in that market? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is I was, I was like looking into um, – some of the uh, the notes on on this, and the first thing I wanted to do was like turn to my partner and say like, hey, like maybe we should like think seriously again about <laughs> buying a house, um, yeah. like selfishly, right? But then like when you get into it a little bit, you know, I I not to like cast shade on economists because they're obviously uh, like experts in their field, and and I don't want to uh, I don't want to hurt their feelings by comparing them to like climatologists. But sometimes when you're looking at what what is a forecast, right? Like we all know this with the weather that like they say it's going to hail and doesn't always happen. So we do have to like kind of take some of this with a grain of salt. Like they say 10%. That doesn't mean it's like guaranteed that like all of these things will happen the way they say they'll happen. Um, but obviously like it sounds like something bad will happen in some respect, but in terms of how that nets out for people like me, um, yeah, I mean, I guess people will probably be less likely to sell if they're if they're really taking a loss. But as we know, in like a city like Toronto, sometimes it can't be avoided. People move, people leave, people have other reasons for selling. So people like me may luck out and get like our dream, our dream place that we didn't think we'd otherwise be able to afford. Because as you know, um, you know, people in this age bracket are constantly, I've had how I numerous friends uh, move to Hamilton. I have one who just moved um, that, you know, it's just like seems impossible uh, to put down roots in this city, uh, especially if you want to have a family. Um, like, again, though, like, I think there are other like interesting little bits in here. You know, I've been talking to friends about, um, uh, uh, available jobs in their workplaces and the difficulty in filling them. And I think there's so much that still needs to happen in terms of like reimagining work and wages and like how we can afford to live in the city through this period, but also into the future. Um, I think that's a really interesting aspect of this as well. You know, my friend works at uh, a major Canadian retailer head office and you know, they're, they're filming like fun videos uh, to try to um, entice uh, people to be <laughs> wanting to work there. And like my friend was kind of like, I don't want to be like your poster child to like get people to work here. But, you know, it's like that might not be enough. Right. Like I said to her, like, are they going to increase wages or offer any other kind of like benefit to work in downtown Toronto? Um, and I really think companies are going to have to rethink that as we like go through all of this. But that's that's just kind of my take on it. Um, that sounds like something a bunch of old people thought of. <laughs> we'll yeah. film a funny video. It will be great. Yeah. It will be great. <laughs> the kids will love it. We'll use, we'll use cool terms. Eat um, it up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Al, I, I've got about 30 seconds. I'm just curious. You, They say the recession, allegedly this report, will be short-lived and not as severe. Do you take any encouragement from that? Or should we batten down the hatches? I hope so, question mark. <laughs> like, you want to be optimistic through this. but And I guess what we've learned through the pandemic is you just don't really know. Like, it's it's almost worse that what we're going through uh, uh, now than it was like a year or two ago. So who knows other than you're, you you got to remain hopeful and you got to think that uh, smart people are going to find creative solutions through this. 
All right. So the panel feels that um, we should be hopeful, which I agree. Um, it may be some hopefulness for young people looking for houses. Uh, and just word to the wise, um, folks, cool videos of your downtown offices are not going to get young people back in there. Just a, just a, a pro tip from some folks on, on the panel today, which I agree. Um, so this next story is a wild one that we're going to do after. Uh, a London teacher is promoting something called ungrading. Uh, where she lets students choose their own uh, grades, and that's what happens. Now, is that a good thing, or, or you know, we gone, we jumped the shark here? Uh, we're going to talk about that next on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Friday Roundtable continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, where we unpack some of the biggest stories of the week uh, with some really smart people from across the country. And this week's panelists, we have Al Farabee, morning show host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, and Jen Pegliero, uh, crime reporter with the Toronto Star. Now, this story made news not just uh, in London, Ontario, where it's originated, but across the country. Uh, a teacher in London, Ontario, um, has plans to continue with an alternative method of grading her students in the new school year after an experiment this past semester. Um, Stacey Oliver spoke to with 580 CFRA's Ottawa Now with Christy Cameron, and she said her students work together on grades twice a year at midterms and at the end of the summer. Here is Oliver explaining her system, which she calls ungrading. The students propose their own grade at those two points, and then they uh, have to justify, uh, justify and prove to me that they, they, that they have earned that grade. So basically you're letting the kids grade themselves. So she explained how that works. We have digital portfolios that they create throughout the semester, that showcases um, not only their best work, but all of the attempts at the work, um, at the uh, all, all the attempts that they did along the way, in order to get to that final piece, which we call the showcase piece, which is what they deem to be the best representation of their learning. So, does that mean any student can just propose any grade? They can, um, but they have to be able to justify that. And the way that they have to do that is to be able to refer to the curriculum expectations um, from the Ontario curriculum. So this, as mentioned, this is called ungrading. And I should say, while um, Stacey Oliver is doing this, this isn't something that originated with her. Um, It's a movement that is global. uh, And the argument is... They want to, the practice of ungrading is where you either minimize or eliminate grades in order to focus on more meaningful student feedback and student learning. The argument is basically grades reduce kind of complex, you know, achievements to a single letter. So, you know, how smart am I? Am I A smart, B smart, C smart? It's not exactly the best system to do that with. There's also problems like grade inflation where people are artificially inflated um, and inconsistent meanings for grades. So I've certainly had teachers who give me, uh, you know, one teacher gives me a B for like another teacher gives me an A or B or C or whatever. So is a grade you get in one course similar to grade in the other. So they're a bit arbitrary. So that's the arguments against it. Uh, now, I kind of saw this and I was like, this also looks a bit bananas because I'm sure there are people in the world who would just be like, you know what? I'm giving myself an A 
and this is why I think I get an A. And, and I've certainly worked in companies where I've gotten self-evaluations from employees and they're out to lunch. Uh, but I would say the vast majority of the evaluations are somewhat representative of where people are. I think they're maybe lightly inflated, but how's that to say that it's less arbitrary uh, than grades? Um, so maybe, Alda, you first. What do you make of ungrading? Are you in favor of the system, or do you think this puts a bit too much power in the hands of the students? My first thought was, what is this? And yeah. I think... I think t- today, I think I can safely say I am the oldest in our group. Mm-hmm. So, and I grew up on, you go to sports day and you either get the blue ribbon, the red ribbon, or the white one, first, second, or third. If you're fourth, you get nothing. Uh, you get, you go to classes, you get graded ABC. I've had F's in my lifetime. Uh, in our business, our radio business, we get graded by ratings, either twice a year or four times a year. So, so we get graded constantly in our own business by our audience. So there's a part of me that struggles with what this is because I've just kind of grown up in a system that, you know, you get graded on things that, uh, that you, um, that you deal with in life. The other side of me is intrigued because there, there is a part of me that says, you are your own worst critic when it comes to a lot of situations. And maybe that's what plays into this. My sense is this works. This will work for some. This will not work for others. And I think you alluded to it too, Amanda, about like, you know, some people you see, they're pretty honest and other people just like, I'll just give myself an A. I'm moving on to the next thing. Right. So, so, (laughs) so I'm, I'm officially mixed on this with, I want to hear more kind of like give me the next chapter of what this is all about yeah and and i saw this at first and i was like this is ridiculous um once again we are you know soft pedaling with with young people when frankly they're going to get into the big bad world and at your point you get graded you get reviewed um so you know not teaching that from a young age doesn't make any sense to me um does that but then i looked into a little bit more i think there's some rationale there i also think there may be some value in revisiting how we assess um, performance with with students now, um, although we know how innovative the our various governments are with teaching, so I think that'll be a couple decades away. But Jen, right. are you pro or anti ungrading? So okay, I'm really interested in it as kind of like an experiment because one of the things that I've actually been looking at as part of my new beat um, and being interested in youth justice is like the ways in which the education system is kind of like set up to fail um, different types of students. Like you just remember being in grade school and like going through that process, like it's really not an ideal learning experience for people. And like growing up and understanding this later, you realize like we all don't learn the same way. And I've thought a lot about like why I did really well in like a traditional school environment when like the person sitting next to me didn't um and like I kind of like what she's doing in the sense that it's causing us to think about that larger problem but I don't think teachers doing these kind of one-off experiments are going to solve that like systemic issue um it's also like I think weird branding because like they are still getting grades because she's still required to give them grades under the curriculum um and like she can't like deviate from making sure that they're taught like a certain amount of things. Uh, but I do like the idea that we're like challenging the status quo on, on learning styles. Um, and it sounds like these students may be getting something 
out of it. Like, I, I don't know that they're necessarily getting a free pass um, because it sounds like if they have like a BS reason that they should have an A plus that they're not necessarily going to get an A plus. Um, and like, and we all know that grading is kind of subjective anyways, right? Like there was a bunch of times, even in university that I like argued for a higher grade and I just like got it. Um, and for that reason, like all these weird rubrics and curriculums, I remember looking at, oh, we had levels when I was in high school. I don't know like how that dates me, but uh, I remember that being really frustrating because you'd get these rubrics that were like incredibly vague about how to reach a level four, which is like an A. Um, and like, you wouldn't understand ever why you got a B plus instead of an A minus. So yeah, I say blow it up. I say do something different, but I, I totally agree with Amanda that it's not something that I think like the Ontario government is prepared to do anytime soon. No, I can, if it, if the reaction from the text board here is, is any consternation to what would happen should the government introduce this, I think it would be, um, it'd be a, a, a vicious debate. Uh, but it, like it, it doesn't. It, it literally at first a bit like I think like Al, I was kind of like, okay, woke people have now descended upon us, and here we go again. Um, yeah. But I think feel, I feel maybe this could do with an, a rebranding. To your point, Al, where you know not calling it and Jen, like you know calling it, they're getting grades. They're not actually not being graded. Yeah, and, like it's not actually ungrading. Yeah, the teacher and the teacher is still a gatekeeper to it. Um, but the onus is sort of put on the students to self evaluate a little more, self reflect more as they do their courses. So maybe there, I think there's, I think there's some value there, because um, certainly like I've, you know, uh, I was a pretty good student, but I had to do a stats course in um, university at Carleton when I was yeah. a journalism student. I, I think oh. Jen, you went, yeah. So all of us, yeah. like none of us have stats brains, I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> so, so I got to the end of that and not self-reflecting on any of my work. Like D was for a degree there, let me tell you. Um, I remember <laughs> frantically calling my dad for my payphone outside of the course because I was freaking out that I was going <laughs> to fail and it was a disaster. And then God bless our teacher. He knew how bad all the journalism students were at this. So he let it, he made it an open book exam, <laughs> which saved my bacon. <laughs> but perhaps, perhaps an ungrading experiment would have had me self-reflect on my work throughout the year. And I wouldn't have gotten to that, to that point. I will say I did get my degree and here I sit. So just don't make me do complex mathematical equations. Um, so next up is our last segment of the show. One of my favorites where we have a little bit of fun. Um, we're going to debate the big, as mentioned earlier, uh, cats on leash. Toronto's looking at it. Do we think that is absolutely nuts or do we think that makes sense? And of course the Rogers, as I look at my phone, Rogers internet is still out across the country. Are you taking the lessons and being off the grid or are you freaking out? That's next on free for all Friday. You're listening to Free For All Fridays with host Amanda Galbraith on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Amanda Galbraith, and this is Free For All Friday, where we unpack some of the biggest stories of the week with uh, some wonderful, smart people from across the country. And this week on our panel, we have Jen Pagliero, who is a, a crime reporter with the Toronto Star and Al Farabee, morning show host on CFAX 1070 in Victoria, B.C. And as mentioned before the break, this is my favorite part of the show because we try and have a little bit of fun here. Uh, and I've been saving this topic all day because Jen uh, is uh, a cat lover um, uh, <laughs> and has adopted one and, and very into it. And there's a big debate happening, a national debate, which I frankly think none of us really needed, um, about cats being off-leash. Now, the city of Toronto, a committee has proposed to ban cats from being allowed to roam 
uh, off leash or discussing this as a potential solution. Uh, and earlier on the show, I spoke with uh, former city councilor and environmentalist Glenda Bearmaker, who's proposing, who's kind of behind some of the push for this. Now, he told me 90 other municipalities already have this bylaw. And here he is explaining why uh, this is a bad idea to let cats roam freely outdoors. You and I as taxpayers actually have to pay a staff person to get in a truck to drive to that location, scoop up the dead cat with a shovel, take it back to the animal shelter, and then incinerate it. So we taxpayers are paying for all of this when if we just kept cats inside and cuddled them and loved them in the warmth of our own homes, we wouldn't have this problem. Uh, A bit graphic, um, but makes the point. Uh, He also called cats killing machines. Cats are killing machines. They may be cute and chubby and cuddly like mine are, but once they're outside, they become killing machines and kill. Uh, actually, the, the figure from Environment Canada is between 100 and 300 million birds per year are killed in Canada by free-roaming cats. Uh, and I will confess, I had a cat. I tried to make my cat an outdoor cat unsuccessfully. I tried to walk her on a leash. It was a disaster. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, well, it was my attempt to get her. She always wanted to be outside. So I thought, okay, I'll try this. And she just, she would lay down in the middle of the sidewalk in front of people. It was just, it was a nightmare. People would call me all the time and be like, your cat. Anyway. Um, so Jen, should we go to you first? Should we lock the cats up? Is this, is this a thing that we should be doing? Or is this the city government just getting into stuff that should, they should leave alone and focus on other things? Oh man, you totally know my answer. <laughs> um, I <laughs> so okay, yeah. Preface this: I am a I am a cat lover. I have an indoor cat that I adopted, and I also used to cover city hall. So I know all these people. I know these committees, and <laughs> it's this one's so funny to me because, like, I think actually that um, Glenn DeBearmaker, who's a former city councilor himself, is like legitimately an animal lover, and I think he's coming to this with that like motivation in mind. So I don't want to like malign his intentions. I do think that he's like thinking about the animals. I'm curious about the argument about that. Like we pay city workers. Um, like I, I'm sure we do. I, I think that's correct from what I understand about um, this service, but also keep in mind that like those workers are also responsible for like other roadkill. So like a raccoon or a squirrel, like stuff that gets called in all the time as well. So I'm not sure like the added expense of like picking up like a dead cat, uh around the city is like we we, basically we can't remove the need for these people by removing outdoor cats so i'm not sure his monetary argument there actually makes sense on like a city budget scale um but like here's my thing about city council is like they're often moving motions that they like can't actually follow through with and this is one of my like big frustrations i think the public's big frustration with stuff like this is that like i don't know how you are going to police this and like you know countering what what glenn was saying about paying city workers to um to have uh these dead animals scooped up it sounds like the intention would be to have a city worker pick up like live cats, which sounds more difficult, uh, knowing fer- knowing how feral cats are. And also there's um, there's commentary from city staff uh, in the story of the star ran that 
like you're going to have then shelters like totally over capacity. Like even if people do eventually come to claim their animals, um, it's going to create like a huge nightmare for the city's shelter system. And we like don't have enough space for these like roaming cats. So, you know, I'm the kind of person I'm like, I would never let my cat outside because I would miss him too much. And I would like worry about him. And I understand where outdoor cat people are coming from. So this to me just seems like a thing council should probably pass on um but they probably won't like there will be a large debate at council that will suck up a lot of time now that this has become so public al free the cats or uh lock them up i am a cat guy just so you know are you i I am two cat people who knew (laughs) i love the i love the kitties i do uh i i have a rare cat who's indoor outdoor but my cat and this is a true story does not leave the yard don't Whoa. ask me why or how that happens. It's a rarity for sure. <laughs> now, I, I, I know birders and birders hate cats. I, I understand that whole argument as to what's going on. But I'm with Jen. I think, like, if you were going to implement this, how are you going to enforce it? It was like when we were having water shortages and it was like, you know, a stage blank of, of water restrictions. Who was going to come into my backyard and say, hey, what are you doing? Don't put the, you don't put the sprinkler on. Like, it's just, it's not going to happen. So, and this is a, a debate that I've heard in our community and I've heard it for a number of years about, yeah, we should do something, but in the end, are we going to do anything? And that's kind of where I think this is starting and ending. It's like, it, it's a great debate. I, I, I heard what he said, cat killers, not exactly in agreement with that, but some people would say, sure. I'm not sure if this is going to go to the next level. All right. So free the cats is the verdict from the panel today. Free the uh, cats. Free the cats. And cat lovers. I did not know. I'm a dog. I had a cat. I had. Well, I grew up with cats, but my last cat really soured me on the experience. But uh, Jen's cat is lovely. I've met Jen's cat. So um, this next one I want to get to real quick. Uh, I think it's making news across the country as we speak. So Rogers Network is down. Um, it's one of the reasons I had some challenges connecting earlier on in the show. Uh, <laughs> but this also means debit internet is down for folks. Um, some people don't have access to cell phones and 911. Um, apparently an estimate is the internet traffic in the country is 75% of its normal rate. And most interestingly to me, the Confederation Bridge and PEI is accepting cash, credit, or gift cards. Uh, which I find very interesting. I don't know what kind of gift card they're taking in lieu of. Um, but question to you both, and Jen, I'll go to you first, and we got about a 45 seconds, maybe, actually, I'd say 30 seconds for each of you. Um, if you lost your internet cell access for the day, would you welcome it, or would you freak out? Uh, I have a bunch of, like, LCBO gift cards that I haven't used yet. I'm wondering if I could use those to just pay for various things. <laughs> Like, we don't have time to get into it, but I think this does speak to, like, the problem we have with, like, a couple of major telecoms controlling everything. And you just look to Europe and Asia about how they do things there. And, like, I I see a lot of solutions, but that's a huge, like, federal telecoms issue. Um, Al, would you, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I think this is pointed to the lack of redundancy in our system. Um, I know a coffee shop near me, um, my fiance was going there this morning and he got a free coffee, which was great for him. Um, but do you think this is a challenge? About 20 seconds left for, for you there. Uh, my job was much more difficult today. Even getting people on the phone to interview on the radio today was a challenge. But if I was at home, just relaxing, going off the grid would have been probably a good relaxing thing for my mental health. So, (laughs) so it's, it's wherever you are and whatever you're trying to do today. Yeah, and I uh, we also had that challenge, uh, and our producer Sam was amazing getting folks 
on, uh, including both of you who were able to get through this. So thank you so much, Woo-hoo. Jen and Al, for coming on the show. Um, you're welcome back, even though you're cat lovers uh, who love cat mur- murdering cats. <laughs> Come on. Whatever that is. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much to Technical Producer Mike. And uh, Sam, as mentioned, she did great work today trying to scare everybody up. I hope wherever you are, you're having a wonderful Friday and we'll have an amazing weekend. I'm Amanda Galbraith. I will see you next Friday.